Good morning. Glad you're here. Please pray with me. Oh, Father, we bow before you in humble adoration. We thank you for sending your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to save us from our sins. Oh, Father, He has saved us, He is saving us, and He shall save us. And we pray that by Your grace, You would increase our faith. Father, help us to rest in Him. Help us to lean on Him. Glorify Your Son in our worship this day, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, saints, from time to time, it's the responsibility of the Christian minister to point out and warn the church against heresy. You remember that early, very, very early in the history of the Christian church, St. Paul had to call out the Judaizers. These were men who were dividing the church, teaching that circumcision of the flesh was necessary to be a Christian, to be saved. And the church rejected this heresy. Do you think that was awkward? You think that was awkward for some men of God to have to go to this council and discuss this and say, well, it was these guys that were saying it. Calling out heresy is often not pleasant, but I've done this before. And some of you will recall my warning that I believe the great heresy of our generation is the so-called health and wealth gospel. And you will hear me call it out again Lord willing, the Scripture knows nothing of it. And the call of Jesus is a call to take up a cross, the instrument of death, a call to die, not a call to health and wealth. But that's for another day. This morning I must warn you of another heresy. At First Baptist Church, we have a long history of having periodic inquirers and new members classes. The purpose is to inform new and potential members about what we believe and what we've agreed not to fight about. And, And we inform them about some of our emphasis and our doctrinal distinctives. Last Lord's Day... In that class, in the inquirer's class, I gave a brief description of Calvinistic doctrine. Specifically, the Calvinistic doctrine summarized by the acrostic tulip. T-U-L-I-P. The flower of grace. Remember that the so-called five points of Calvinism represented by that acrostic, those did not originate with John Calvin himself, but they were a response, a response by the students of Calvin to the five articles of remonstrance 
that were offered by the students, the followers of Jacobus Arminius. But to briefly re- refresh your recollection, the five points are as follows. Listen, the T in the tulip, the T in the flower of grace stands for total depravity. And this asserts that as a consequence of the fall of humanity into sin, every person is born enslaved to sin. Not freeborn, slave born. People are not by nature inclined to love God, but rather they're inclined to serve their own interest and to reject the rule of God. The you in the tulip stands for unconditional election. An unconditional election asserts that God has chosen from eternity past those whom He will bring to Himself, not based on any foreseen virtue in them, not based on any merit or faith or anything that He sees in them. Rather, The choice of God is unconditional, grounded in His mercy alone. God has chosen from eternity to extend mercy to those that He has chosen and to withhold mercy from those whom He has not chosen. The L in the flower of grace, the L in the tulip, stands for limited atonement sometimes called definite atonement. And this asserts that Jesus' substitutionary atonement was definite and certain in its purpose and in what it accomplished. And listen, the implication of this is that only the sins of the elect were atoned for by Jesus' death. But they were definitely and definitively atoned for. He did exactly what He intended to do. The eye of the tulip stands for irresistible grace. And this doctrine teaches that the saving grace of God is effectively, effectually applied to those whom He has determined to save. That is, His chosen ones, sometimes called His elect. And the irresistible grace of God overcomes any resistance they have to obeying the call of the gospel, and it brings them to saving faith, and they are thrilled about it. That means that when God sovereignly purposes to save someone, they will certainly be saved. He gets the job done. The P of the tulip stands for perseverance of the saints, sometimes referred to as the preservation of the saints. And this doctrine asserts that since God is sovereign and His will cannot be thwarted or frustrated by humans or anything else, those that God has called to Himself and into communion with His Son will continue in their faith until the end. They will be preserved and they will persevere. 
So that's a brief reminder of the flower of grace. We don't preach about that every Lord's Day here, but it's something that is most surely believed among us. Something that influences our teaching and our preaching and our outlook. And saints, brothers and sisters, listen. In my experience, there, there is a blessed release in believing those doctrines of grace. There's a blessed release because it takes the emphasis off of what I do and it puts the emphasis upon what God has done. It acknowledges that salvation is of the Lord. Jonah 2 verse 9 and it magnifies God and glorifies His wonderful works for the children of men. Hallelujah! What a Savior! Now, my sermon is going to be a little different because I want to speak to you this morning not of a doctrine that we love like a flower, like the tulip. But I want to speak to you of a doctrine that we despise. I think that probably every person who has ever said, yes, I am a Calvinist, has had to deal with the damage done to the term Calvinist by the so-called hyper-Calvinists. Listen, it, it, it's hard to be a Calvinist, and I identify as one. It's hard to be a Calvinist without somebody accusing you of being a hyper-Calvinist or somebody slurring you with that term. Have you heard of hyper-Calvinists or hyper-Calvinism? Well, what is it? What is it? Well, contrary to what you might expect, Jeannie, hyper does not refer to enthusiasm or excitement. The, the hyper in the terminology comes from the Greek prefix huper, which comes from the preposition huper, and it means beyond or over. Beyond or over. So technically... Literally, a hyper-Calvinist is someone who goes beyond, someone who goes over the bounds of what the Bible teaches. And we believe that the flower of grace, the tulip, we believe that it's a good summary of what the Bible teaches about soteriology. Soteriology being the theology or teaching about the nature and means of salvation. But hyper-Calvinism goes over that. It goes beyond that. So hyper-Calvinists are Calvinists who go beyond the tulip. Or they say more than the canons of Dort. They go beyond and over the teaching of Calvin. And friend, the result, listen, the result is heresy. Rank heresy. 
Now, have no doubt. The Bible clearly teaches that God has chosen, foreordained, predestined His people for salvation. Somebody should say amen. Please turn to St. Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 1. I'm saying, friend, if you're a Christian, it's because of the good grace of God. Ephesians chapter 1, the great apostle writes, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved, in whom we have redemption, through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, wherein He hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He hath purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in Him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of Him who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will. Chosen before the foundation of the world predestinated unto adoption, guaranteed an inheritance because of the predestinating will of Almighty God. Friends, this is good stuff. Listen to Dr. Luke's observation about salvation, about Gentile salvation. This is from Acts chapter 13. Paul and Barnabas and Luke are in Antioch of Pisidia. And the Bible says, The next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spoke against these things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. But Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you. But seeing that you put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. 
For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for the salvation unto the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad, and they glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained unto eternal life believed. Acts chapter 13, verses 44 through 48. Did you hear that? Who believed? King James Version said, As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. New International Version says, All who were appointed to eternal life believed. The Net Bible said, All who had been appointed for eternal life believed. My friend, listen. This is not the teaching of Edward. This is not the teaching of Bill. This is the teaching of Peter and Paul and all the holy apostles and Aurelius Augustine and John Calvin. Listen, it is the teaching of Holy Scripture. But beloved, listen, hyper-Calvinism goes beyond this. Hyper-Calvinism goes over this and unbiblically, unscripturally teaches that because God has chosen, predestined, foreordained those who will be saved, no evangelism is necessary. No public proclamation of the gospel is needed because God will save His elect whether Christians preach and teach the good news of Jesus or not. Now, listen, beloved. Have you any doubt? Have you any doubt that Jesus left a mandate for His followers to proclaim the gospel everywhere? Do you doubt that? We believe that not only are we to believe in the sovereignty of God, we are to assert the sovereignty of God. You know what I'm saying? You should submit. People get all upset. You know what what the goal of Islam is? It's to conquer the world. Submission. Well, what do you think the goal of Christianity is? It's to conquer the whole world. Isn't it? Don't you want every knee to bow and every tongue to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father? Friend, that's what we're doing here. We're on a quest for world domination. We are not only to believe in the sovereignty of God, we are to assert it. Godless governments, listen, godless governments don't get to decide what is a woman and what is a man and what is a marriage. God's already decided. Listen, God has already decided. And He is sovereign, and truth will win. And Jesus Christ said, I am the truth. 
and, and, and listen, friend, if you ever had an opportunity to actually speak to Joseph Biden or to Kamala Harris or to Donald Trump, I will tell you, I will tell you right now what the best thing that you could tell them would be. Are you listening? Repent and believe the gospel of Jesus. Repent. Change your mind and believe the good news of Jesus of Nazareth. That would be the best thing you could tell them. Change your mind. Embrace Jesus of Nazareth. Kiss the Son. Listen. The Bible teaches that Christians are not only to believe the good news, they're to share the good news. And beloved, I I can confirm to you this morning that every Christian I've ever met, every Christian that I have ever met, has heard the good news from another Christian. Or they've read the good news in a book that was given them by another Christian. Maybe somebody else has a story, but every Christian I've ever met heard the gospel from a person. Do you see how hyper-Calvinism is hyper? How it goes beyond and and over what the Holy Scriptures teach and affirms something that neither the Bible nor John Calvin ever taught? In the first gospel, listen, in the first gospel, the last recorded words of the Savior to His disciples before His ascension were this. All power is given to me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the world. Amen. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Now listen, we who call ourselves evangelicals, we believe that the apostolic mission continues as we modern followers of Jesus seek to teach and baptize believers, as we long and passionately desire for the conversion and salvation of men and women and boys and girls, because we know that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved except the name of Jesus. Friend, don't you want your friends and neighbors to come to Jesus? Hyper-Calvinism goes beyond the Scriptures and affirms the sovereignty of God to such a degree that it negates the blessed privilege and the duty that the saints have to carry the good news of Jesus to the world. And listen... (laughs) Without a need of preaching to the lost, there's little concern for the lost. 
little prayer for the lost, little attempt to reach the lost. Now, you may be saying within yourself, well, Edward, you made that sound really bad, but I've never met anyone like that. That's strange. I have never met such a person. I've never encountered anything like that. I think that's a straw man. Well, I'll tell you something. I have. I have met someone like that. I have. I want to be respectful, but this still bothers me a lot. Several years ago, there was a beautiful older couple who used to be members of this church who actually worked and served with us for years. And they self-excommunicated. They quit. They left us. They went out from us because they were not of us. They walked away and abandoned us because in their estimation, our missionary zeal proved that we didn't fully embrace the sovereignty of God. Lord, have mercy on them. The hyper-Calvinist is one who puts a system over the Scripture. He prizes logic above revelation. He is one who would put God in the box that He has created in His mind. And listen, the God of heaven will not be boxed in. Do you know what God can do? anything he wants to. The hyper-Calvinist is excessive and overemphasizes one aspect of God's character to the detriment of other aspects of God's character. Hyper-Calvinists emphasize God's sovereignty, but they de-emphasize God's love. They tend to set God's sovereignty against clear biblical calls to human responsibility. You know, the hyper-Calvinist would say of my preaching, it is wrong for you to preach the gospel freely to a group of people and invite them all to come to Jesus. Because who are you to know whether they're really called or not? And I say, I don't know. But I do know that Holy Scripture has commanded us to preach the gospel to every creature. So I'm going to follow that U.S. Marine dictum. Kill them all and let God sort them out. I believe, listen, I believe that hyper-Calvinism is a slander to the great reformer John Calvin. I read here from his Institutes of the Christian Religion, book four, 
chapter 1, section 3. We are not commanded to distinguish the reprobate from the elect, which is not our province, but that of God alone. I don't have to figure that out. Not my job. When Paul preached to the pagans at Athens, he says, God now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Acts 17.30. And beloved, listen, if we would pattern our preaching on the apostolic preaching, then that's what we should preach as well. God has commanded all men everywhere to repent. So, we will proclaim the gospel everywhere. That is our privilege. That is our duty. Salvation is of the Lord. That is His business. I can't save anyone, friend. He can. The testimony of Holy Scripture is, quote, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. 1 Corinthians 1.21 now, now listen, saints. Paul's Greek for preaching here is kerugma, and it means message, the message, or the proclamation. And in this case, the message about God's Son, Jesus, the Savior of the world. So preaching, listen, preaching here is not just what I'm doing right now from the pulpit. Surely it's that. Surely it's that. But it is any proclamation of the divinity and the dominion of Jesus. You see, all men should bow to Jesus. He is Dominus. He is Lord. Why should they bow? Because He's divine. He's God. It's not just what I'm doing here, friend. Listen. It's the conversation you have with your children when you tell them, if there was one thing I could wish for you, one thing I could wish for you is that you would come to Jesus and that you would cling to Him and that you'd bow before His cross and that you would worship Him as Lord of all. That's what Daddy wants for you. That's what Mama wants for you. Yeah, I hope you get a good job, but that's what I really want for you. Preaching, kerugma, is that word that you drop with your coworker. The one who knows you're a Christian. That word you drop with her when you say, I'll pray for you. Affirming the dominion of Jesus over all things, even the circumstances of her life. And you say, I will pray for you. When you do that, listen, when you do that, what you're saying to your friend, do you understand what you're saying to your friend? You're saying, I know the King and I'll entreat Him on your behalf. 
Beloved, listen, (laughs) that's what Paul means when he calls us ambassadors for Christ. You see, we've got connections. We are well connected. We've got the key of David. We pray for men. And as we are able, we beseech them and pray for them in Christ's stead, saying, Be ye reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians 5.20 So again, listen. (laughs) You may wonder, are there really people who believe like this? This hyper-Calvinism stuff? Yes, there are. You might be familiar with the quotation, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Have you heard that? Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Well, that's been attributed to the great particular Baptist British minister, William Carey, known as the father of modern missions, the founder of the first Baptist Missionary Society. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Carrie was a Calvinist Christian, a post-millennialist, Eric. He died in India. He translated the Bible into Bengali and established the first degree-granting university in India. But when he was a young and newly ordained minister, it's recorded that at a meeting of Baptist leaders in the late 1700s in Britain, he stood up to argue for the value of overseas missions. And he was abruptly interrupted by an older minister, John Ryland, who was reported to have said, young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. Sit down, young man. God doesn't need your help. Now, Ryland was a Calvinist. And what he said there is classic hyper-Calvinism. Now, the good news, the good news is that through extended correspondence with his friend John Newton and his friendship with Carey, And his reading of the theology of Jonathan Edwards, John Ryland came to an evangelical Calvinistic position later in his life. But listen, William Carey didn't stop. His allegiance was to Christ, not to Ryland. And Carey went to India and proclaimed the good news of Jesus there. William Carey would go on to write a book entitled, An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of Heathens. And in his book, he argued his case that Christians should use all the means they could to reach the heathen with the gospel. He wrote, listen, quote, It seems as if many thought the commission was sufficiently put in execution by what the apostles and others have done. 
that we have enough to do to attend to the salvation of our own countrymen. And that if God intends the salvation of the heathen, He will some way or other bring them to the gospel or the gospel to them. It is thus that multitudes sit at ease and give themselves no concern about the far greater part of their fellow sinners who to this day are lost in ignorance and idolatry, end quote. Now, I'll remind you that William Carey was a convinced Calvinist. And the quote attributed to him, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God, well, that's exactly what he did. That's exactly what he did when he proclaimed the gospel of Jesus in India. And India would never be the same. And, and friends, this world would never be the same. He is the father of the modern missionary movement. And do you know who sends more missionaries around the world than any other denomination of Christianity? Well, it's those Baptists. The way that the church viewed missions has never been the same because of that Christ-exalting Calvinist that's become known to us as the father of modern missions. Well, friend, I tell you, the difference between Calvinism and hyper-Calvinism, this is the difference between heaven and hell. The distance between them is that too. Valid Calvinism is full of life and passion for God and desires to make His glory shine among the nations. Hyper-Calvinism is lifeless heresy that condemns souls to destruction, kills evangelism, and ruins churches. And li listen, you should take a good look at the missionary movements of the church in church history, and, and you'll see Calvinists leading the charge. Well, listen, beloved, they were confident... They were confident. You see, because they believe that salvation is of the Lord and that Jesus is full of love and has many sheep to be gathered into His fold, they were sure that if they would just preach the Gospel, sinners would be converted. And so, in obedience, they preached. And God saved hundreds and thousands and millions William Carey, Adoniram Judson, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. These were all Calvinists. And the great reformer John Calvin himself. Listen, he trained and sent missionaries out to preach the truth. John Calvin. Yeah. So saints, <laughs> I recently taught the inquirers class that we're a Calvinistic church. And I want to affirm strongly, we are not hyper-Calvinist here. We are evangelical Calvinists who yearn for the salvation of souls. 
We love God. And we love our fellow man. And we want our neighbors to be saved. Calvinism is not hyper-Calvinism. But listen, if you represent yourself as a Calvinist, there's a good chance that at some time, somebody will call you a hyper-Calvinist. But there's a big, big difference. You see, Calvinism is orthodox. It affirms the teaching of Holy Scripture. Hyper-Calvinism is heresy. It rejects the free offer of the gospel to humanity. And in my judgment, it is cruel and evil. And to call faithful Calvinistic Christians hyper-Calvinist, why, why that's to consign a massive number of people from church history to destruction. People like Charles Haddon Spurgeon, William Carey, Martin Luther, Andrew Fuller, Adoniram Judson, George Whitfield. If you're interested in the history of this, you'd probably be blessed by Ian Murray's little book, Spurgeon versus Hyper Calvinism. The battle for gospel preaching. Spurgeon was vilified in newspapers, Christian newspapers in England, for preaching the gospel and commanding sinners, all men, to repent. And they ask him, just like I theoretically ask myself, how can you invite them? How do you know they're really called? Listen to the blurb from Murray's book. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, 1834 to 1892, is best remembered today for the remarkable ministry he exercised in London during the Victorian era. His influence was incalculable. Thousands listened to his preaching every week, while hundreds of thousands throughout the world later read his sermons in published form. A man of great natural gifts, charm, and wit, Spurgeon's master passion was evident in everything that he did to preach Jesus Christ to all as the only Savior. But as early as 1855, this brought him into serious and prolonged doctrinal controversy with hyper-Calvinism. By tracing this conflict, exploring the issues involved in it, and showing what was at stake in them, Ian Murray underlies the contemporary relevance and importance of sharing Charles Haddon Spurgeon's convictions. That's, that's the blurb. Now, what were Spurgeon's convictions? What's he talking about? That God loves and saves sinners. That God ordains the salvation of His sheep. That if shepherds will call, sheep will hear and sheep will come. Saints, listen, that's what we believe. That's what we believe here. And, and do you know what's happened in Cambodia? We have first-hand knowledge about this. I'm not telling you what I think. I'm telling you what I know. We know a man 
Chang Nuan, who preached the good news of Jesus to the heathen. And many heathen are heathen no more. Many are now brothers, sisters, joint heirs with Christ. Saints. Beloved, listen. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is growing. Maybe not here. But as God wills, listen. But as God wills, and if we will sow seeds, seeds proclamational, seeds financial, a harvest is guaranteed. So listen, in case there's any doubt where we, First Baptist Church, stand, please hear the words of Jesus of Nazareth the Savior of men, that He spoke in a city, implying that there were many hearers. This is our Lord and our Savior. And He said, Come unto Me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn of Me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. And he said, All that the Father giveth me shall come unto me. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. John 6.37 Let every mortal ear attend and every heart rejoice. The trumpet of the Gospel sounds with an inviting voice. Lo, all ye hungry, starving souls that feed upon the wind and vainly strive with earthly toys to fill an empty mind. Eternal wisdom has prepared a soul-reviving feast and bids your longing appetites the rich provision taste. Ho, ye that pant for living streams and pine away and die, here you may quench your raging thirst with springs that never dry. Rivers of love and mercy here in a rich ocean join Salvation in abundance flows like floods of milk and wine. You perishing and naked poor who work with mighty pain to weave a garment of your own that will not hide your sin. Come naked and adorn your souls in robes prepared by God, wrought by the labors of His Son, and dyed in His own blood. Dear God, the treasures of Thy love are everlasting mines, deep as our helpless miseries are, and boundless as our sins. The happy gates of gospel grace stand open night and day. Lord, we are come to seek supplies and drive our wants away. Saints, we're Calvinists. We are not hyper-Calvinist.
Please stand with me for prayer. Let us pray. Oh, blessed Lord Jesus, no human mind could conceive or invent the gospel. Acting in eternal grace, thou art both its messenger and its message. Lived out on earth through infinite compassion, applying thy life to insult, injury, death, that I might be redeemed, ransomed, freed. Blessed be thou, O Father, for contriving this way. O eternal thanks to thee, Lamb of God, for opening this way. Praise to thee, O Holy Spirit, for applying this way to my heart. O glorious Trinity, impress thy gospel on my soul until its virtue diffuses every faculty. Let it be heard, acknowledged, professed, felt, Teach me to secure this mighty blessing. Help me to give up every darling lust, to submit heart and life to Thy command, to have it in my will, controlling my affections, molding my understanding. Help me not to depart from Thy way in any instance, nor to take advantage in order to escape evil, inconvenience, or danger. O oh, take me to Thy cross, to seek glory from its infamy. Strip me of every pleasing pretense of righteousness by my own doings. O gracious Redeemer, I have often neglected Thee, crucified Thee afresh by my impenitence and hardness of heart. I thank Thee for Thy patience that has borne with me so long and for the grace that now makes me willing to be Thine. O unite me to Thyself with inseparable bonds that nothing may ever, ever draw me back from Thee, my Lord, my Savior. In Jesus' name, Amen.